0: Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Joining me today is Barrett Ward, founder and CEO of the ethical lifestyle brand, Able. Able's mission is to end generational poverty for women by manufacturing directly in the communities it wants to impact, which today include Ethiopia, Peru, Mexico, and the U.S., Doing so has provided job opportunities and decreased charity dependency. As the company's continued to grow, so has its goals, leading to the creation of its own ultra transparent reporting system that details its employee wages and manufacturing impact. After living in Ethiopia and witnessing firsthand the prevalence of women in poverty, Barrett was inspired to create a safe and reliable way for women to make a living. Barrett built Able into a prominent lifestyle brand that leads to measurable impact for local communities. He's also dedicated his career to fighting poverty, and we're looking forward to hearing more about the global impact he's inspired. Barrett, welcome to Brand on Purpose.
1: It is nice to socially distance with you, Aaron. And
0: we were talking earlier about how this really cool Squadcast technology allows us to actually see each other. So it feels like we're in each other's home studios, even though we're as not As much as anybody I've talked together. to in
1: the last month. That it, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So listen, let's just start at the basics here. So you've lived this incredible charity-driven life, I think, since graduating from college, which is pretty amazing, and I'm awe-inspired by it. Talk a little bit about the founding of ABLE, and then we can kind of work backwards, and then a little forwards and a little backwards.
1: Well, I will be sure to downgrade your awe-inspired mentality as this conversation goes (laughs) on. It's been a whole lot of serendipity as life has continued. But yeah, ABLE started because my wife and I were living in Ethiopia. Right when we got married in 2008, we moved to Ethiopia. And have you been to Ethiopia or any countries in Africa?
0: I have not, no. Well, I was just going to ask you, why did you move to Ethiopia?
1: Yeah, Ethiopia is beautiful. Well, Rachel actually got a job offer to work in the adoption space at that point. And I had actually founded a nonprofit that did work there as well. And so it was a real natural fit for us. I mean, it was scary as all get out. It wasn't like a decision of, let's just go to move to Ethiopia for life. It was something we had to really work through a lot. But we eventually felt, however they say, led or called or whatever it may be to make that choice. And so we moved to Ethiopia. And to the point of how ABLE came about, I was there working with vulnerable women and children working with local organizations that did work, whether it be with orphans or women that had come out of the commercial sex industry. And in fact, it was that that was the genesis for ABLE because I had never seen sex slavery or any of that space up close and personal. I'd only heard about it. But once I moved to Ethiopia, I'm the kind of person that when I see it visually, I can't let go of it. Up until that point, I can ignore it all day long. I can yeah, watch it. You can't
0: unsee or unforget these things. That's right. right. Like, you can't unsee yeah. it.
1: And what I couldn't unsee was that I'll never forget. There was a road called Victory Road that we would turn onto, And there was a concrete wall along the edge, kind of like one of those highway dividers, where all these girls would sit. And I just thought they were communing and having fun and waving it me and my wife kindly. And then I eventually understood that they were either sex slaves, forced prostitution, or women that had gone into that just to support their families or awful choices like that. So that stuck with us. And so we wanted to get involved and figure out as a charity, how could we get engaged with supporting these women? We met a local charity that was doing incredible work. And everything that we heard from them and the women centered around this simple thought, we are grateful for charity. We are grateful for the healthcare, 75% of them were HIV positive. They were grateful for the childcare and getting them off the streets and all those kind of things. But the thing they always said to us was, look, at the end of this road, if we don't have a job at the end of this six month rehabilitation period, if we don't have a job, we're going to be stuck back on the street. So what are you going to do about that? And that was kind of this brutal awakening for me, which is while charity is critical, and I do believe it is critical, there are people that are destitute in the world. There's also a truth that there's not enough people and not enough companies and brands involved in the creative space of how do we create jobs for those able-bodied people who all want work just as much as you and I do. We all want work. We all want that dignity. And so in meeting the women, we heard their stories over and over. And we spoke to them and said, well, look, let's start a business. And I don't know nothing about starting a business, but they said, we'd love to start selling scarves. So they started making scarves. We paid them to make scarves. And actress named Minka Kelly actually came and did a video with us. And at that time, Friday Night Lights was really big that she was on. And the video took off, and within about two months, we'd sold 4,100 scarves, and we realized, holy macro, we have something.
0: And you were selling these scarves all around the world, right?
1: Well, we just started by selling them on our website for our nonprofit. And it was three women, Bezu, Ayu, Mulu, and Meslu, making the scarves. And it took off. And what we realized that consumers were identifying with is that if you're going to be serious about solutions to poverty, you have to do two things. You have to create jobs, and you have to do so for women. And so that's where we landed. That's how we got started.
0: Did you run into the same kind of cultural barriers around economic empowerment in Ethiopia as they do exist in other countries where women shouldn't have their own money or women can't control their own finances? It's typically men who work and women who don't. Or was that not as much the case in Ethiopia?
1: I would say that Ethiopia, in my experience, was pretty much on par with the rest of the average of the world. It's not an oppressive society by any means, but as you and I both know, there's also income inequality here in the United States. So I think the first jobs most places in the world go to men. And so that is why we got into the empowerment of women game, because we understand and it's not just a heart thing. It's a statistical reality that when a woman is given a job, the impact that she has on her community and her family is actually statistically far more significant than it is a man. And so that is why we invested in that space.
0: I think I was reading a UNICEF stat that women reinvest 80% of their income into their families while men only invest 30 to 40%.
1: That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, And I
0: think we might've pulled that from your website. I'm not really sure we pulled it from, but that Yeah, makes but it's sense.
1: UNICEF. Yeah, that's UNICEF for sure
0: and then so you created this model in one country with one product the scarf talk about how you scaled it to multiple products multiple countries
1: yeah and this is the part where i hope to disappoint is the thought that there was strategy or some kind of brilliant vision for where we were headed just wasn't the case we started selling scarves and a woman that i know named diana said hey what if you tried to get them into stores and you came to the market in Atlanta and tried to sell them to stores? And I said, well, that sounds great. What's market. And it turns out there's these markets all over the country that sell products to retail stores. And so we did that and it started to take off. And as I said before, what we really saw was is we were kind of at that front edge of consumers really caring about their purchase and that it was meaningful to them to have an impact on someone's life through economic empowerment. So it started to grow through that. And then the next thing we thought is in Ethiopia, one of the major exports is leather goods, you know? So cattle are a massive place of sustenance for that world, not only for food, but also hundred percent use of leather for purposes of commerce. And so there's no wastage in that society on that front. And so, because that was a major export, we didn't want to try to teach them or ask them to do something they'd never done before. But in fact, it was indigenous to their culture. And that created less roadblocks for us as a company, as if we were trying to teach them garment making when they hadn't done garment making. So we started next with leather. And we actually had a bag. This is, again, all these moments of serendipity. We actually had a bag called the Mamouye Tote. We named after a woman at one of our manufacturers there. And that tote just took off. I mean, for no reason whatsoever than other serendipity. I don't know how to design my way out of a paper bag, much less a leather bag. But it turns out Julianne Huff posted about it. Jessica Alba was caught wearing it. Drew Barrymore was caught wearing it. You know, all these celebrities just loved that bag for some reason. And they love the story behind it. And that's what really propelled us to the next level
0: had you made any sort of concerted effort or spend in my world to kind of like reaching out to to PR spend around that? All that. Yeah. I mean, or did that just happen?
1: We did have a PR agency for sure. We had just hired our first PR agency and the PR agency was friends with a woman named Anita Patrickson. That's a brilliant stylist. And Anita styles a woman named Julianne Huff, and she actually saw Anita carrying that bag and posted about it and said, I just stole this bag from my stylist. I promise I bought her another one. And that's where it took off, man. And then yes, it started getting into the hands of more celebrities, both through them sharing with each other and through our PR agency, giving it to some of the folks that they knew.
0: Were you ever concerned along the way or sensitive to the fact that even though you're also empowering women and you're Quite frankly, probably saving lives, not just improving lives, that you also didn't want to over publicize what they're actually making and manufacturing for fear of being called a cultural appropriator or like taking advantage. And I know you weren't, but did you ever have that fear? Or, or, oh, for sure. Were you trying to like manage that line, right?
1: Yeah, man, it's a conversation we've been having a lot, even recently with the coronavirus and what's been going on here. And you're seeing a lot of brands, as people have more time to read and more time to watch, and they're getting beyond the taglines, you're seeing brands, I think, that have not ever genuinely had a deep, authentic voice getting slaughtered right now because it's the overflow of their heart. You know, you can't fake it. And all of a sudden, you start posting what would have worked on Twitter or Instagram before as, as replies to concerns. It's not working anymore. And in the same way, we've always navigated that. And as God is my witness, I hope it's true that we've navigated that well because we actually do care about the women we work with. And if that is the actual reason you do what you do, then you do things like make sure they're paid a living wage and you do things like make sure their voice is protected and not exploited. And so to that end, early on, we actually did start by telling a few of the women's stories. With their permission. And this was 2010. And Facebook hadn't really come on that strong yet. It was coming, for sure, but it wasn't worldwide yet. And one of the moments that was significant for us is one of the women said, Hey, my daughter saw me posted on Facebook, one of the women from Ethiopia. And within twenty-four hours, we had shut down everything on the website related to stories of women until we could restrategize how do we retell our story. And so I think your consumers will give you a lot of grace in those moments, as long as they see you admitting your faults and working your butts off to figure it out. The day of the PR spin quick answer is over.
0: You guys are radically transparent. I don't know how else to say it, but you're one of the first fashion brands to publish all of your hourly wages. This goes back to 2018, maybe, maybe earlier.
1: So this is actually, I think, what is it? Yeah, 2018. So I could tell you why we started doing that. Would you like to talk through that? Absolutely, yeah. What I was starting to see as we were a growing company is for the first few years, we employed like 30 women and we knew all of them. We knew the impact we were having on them. But as we continued to grow, one of the things I realized is, man, we're losing visibility to the bottom line. I actually had a seminal moment where I remember someone coming up to me after a speech and saying, it's so amazing all the things that you're doing for women all over the world. And it just struck me. I was like, man, I don't know that that's true anymore. I don't know that we're having the impact on every person that we set out to have. So, what we did is we looked around for an audit that went really, really, really deep on not only our manufacturing, but also on the impact on women. And we really didn't find anything. Probably one of the biggest disappointments that we found was that there wasn't a lot of boots on the ground. A lot of people offered to do them through people turning in reports and random assessments, but not actually sitting down and meeting with the women. And to me, that felt like random testing in the major league baseball. It's like, it doesn't work. And so you've got to meet with the people. So we developed our own audit, which it sounds like I like starting things. I don't, it stresses me out. But we started our own audit in order to really go deeply on the impact on women and the impact of wages and that had a boots on the ground element. So we did it. We learned a ton about our manufacturers. We started with Ethiopia. And in fact, one of the manufacturers that I thought would pass with flying colors actually had really terrible marks. And while that was really disheartening, it's exactly why we created the audit is we actually wanted to know. And we found some bad news about oppression of women, withholding of paychecks if they were sick, improper use of PTO and things like that, that were really oppressive. And so we worked with that manufacturer to try to restore things. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it was a commitment to us to only work with manufacturers that were headed in the right direction. You don't have to be perfect. We're not assessing manufacturers so that they give us, here's the five bullet points of why will pass flying colors in the world of public relations. Not interested. We want to work with people that are actually trying to figure out how to do it the right way. And so we really value progress over perfection.
0: I want to come right back to that. We're going to take a very quick break. Let's do it. And I want to talk about that progress over perfection. Okay. We're back with my guest, Barrett Ward, founder and CEO of Able. So we're talking about this audit of wages, which is more than just an audit of wages. There's also an audit of best practices, how you treat your employees, how you give back, how you empower them, how you change their lives. And one of the things you mentioned is you didn't do this for PR purposes. PR would follow, but you did it because it's the right thing to do. But I'm curious, was there an incident or a moment that led you to this quest? Or was it more of, huh, like you had said earlier, we have all the success. We feel like We're making an impact, but are we really, have we lost sight of the bottom line, like you had said before, which is not the bottom line in terms of profit, but the bottom line in terms of impact. Was that really the kind of the impetus for it?
1: Yeah. And what I would say as a corporation, we never lost sight of why we were doing what we were doing, but we realized as we were growing that we were losing visibility to that. And so that's why we had to create something. It's kind of like HR. We've grown from a four-person company to pre-corona 90 people. We've experienced some of the furloughs that everybody else has too. But we had that rapid growth over five years. And in the same way with HR, you know how it goes where, well, I know everybody in the company. We're great when we're 10 to 15 to 20 people. But once you get to that 50-person point, if you don't have good systems in place to make sure that everybody's taken care of, things will start to fall apart. And so we wanted to prevent that from happening with our manufacturers. I'll say this in closing that out. The reason wages and wage transparency became so important was this. As we were learning about living wages, we started asking other brands, both anonymously and face-to-face, what are you doing to drive living wages for people? And we saw that this was by far the most ignored piece of employee care that there could possibly be. Everybody was moving towards helping the environment. And I think a lot of that is based on the fact that it's quick PR and that it is low cost, but there's nothing more expensive than paying your people well. And if anybody's seen that film, True Cost, have you seen that film, True Cost, on Netflix before?
0: No, but I'm actually looking to add to my queue, True Cost.
1: That's right. Everybody should add to their queue now. It's about the fashion world and the devastating impact on people that it has. It is the largest employer of women in the world, the largest industrial employer of women in the world. 75% of the people making our clothes around the world are women, but only it's estimated that as few as 2% earn a living wage, which means they can barely make ends meet. So that means 98% of the clothes that we're all wearing are made by someone that can hardly make ends meet. So this to us became the silver bullet that we wanted to try to expose. So we didn't want to publish an average wage because that doesn't protect the person at the bottom of the wage ladder. Right, it's misleading. It's misleading. Bezos, he tried to push that storyline for a long time before Bernie Sanders kept pushing on him saying, hey, forget about your average wage. Your wages are below a living wage. And that eventually made them raise their minimum wage to 15%. And it was awesome. And so that's the same kind of pressure we're trying to place is to say, not an average wage, not the labor cost in your garment, but how much is the lowest person in your wage scale paid? Because if we know that information, then it protects everybody up from there. So that's why we started publishing our lowest wages, because we want to move consumer movement. And I want to say this clearly. I've probably misused terms like PR or I, I sound like I'm against it. I'm 100% for PR. It's just doing it in an honest and authentic way. And I think that anybody that's strong in the PR world now understands that that's what you have to do. You have to support brand authenticity, not taglines.
0: I lecture on this a lot. In fact, I have a virtual lecture tomorrow with my alma mater, GW, because I go back every couple times a year to lecture and I talk about brand purpose. And one of the things I often say is PR is the outcome. It's not the purpose. The purpose is the purpose. (laughs) And it sounds so silly, but if you do things right, you're going to get good PR. You're going to get accolades, but don't do it because you want the good accolades. You're doing it because it's who you are and it's part of your process, it's part of your business, it's part of your vision. I think that's what you're saying.
1: No, it's 100% what I'm saying. That's brilliantly said. And also, if you do it for the PR, even if you start out for doing it for the right reasons, it's in the inches, it's not in the miles. And as you, you deviate and start making decisions that sacrifice your people or sacrifice your mission in order to get that good PR or a better bottom line on the, on the P&L, you're going to reap what you sow in the negative side there. And it may have short-term gains, but the long-term you will lose.
0: So I know that, mean you're a very humble guy and you're I also can sense you're a little self-deprecating but you're also incredibly talented, but you lived your entire life in your career as someone who has really devoted yourself to others and others' livelihoods and helping people who are underserved. And I don't think I'm overstating that. I really don't. Unless there's a part of your life that I'm not seeing, but talk to me a little bit about why. I don't say this in a challenging way. I, I say it again out of respect and out of props because I try to be as generous with my time for others as humanly possible, while at the same time managing the realities of people have to, and systems and everything I need to support in the world. So how did you get on
1: that path and why? This is really funny <laughs> because there is an earlier part of my story where the only thing I was trying to do for other people was exploit them. And so that was my 20s.
0: <laughs> That's everybody in their 20s. Come on. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> the point is, is I was definitely... I wasn't born with a desire or I don't know that it's my natural DNA to try to help people. I mean, my 20s were mostly spent just trying to make that money. In fact, that's what they were. I mean, I was in sales and sales management and I was good at it. And I was making that coin that I wanted to make so badly because I knew that that would give me everything I wanted in life. And... Actually, it was when I was about 30 that I went on a trip to Peru and saw poverty for the first time. And as I kind of reflected earlier in the conversation, I need the two by four. I need the two by four upside the head that shows me up close and personal, because if you show it to me on a commercial or whatever, I just ignored it or wasn't my problem. But I was in Peru and saw a little girl walk out of a tin shed that was probably about five feet by five feet was her home and threw a bowl of dirty water in her face to clean up, supposedly. And I just sat there in awe and just wept. I just couldn't believe how bad I had missed it to that point in life. So really, that was the seminal moment for me kind of going, what am I doing? You know, I just bought my dream car. And it all kind of started adding up that I'm not getting happier the more I have. This accumulation, is not driving any more joy for me. And so that's when I kind of try to figure out what's the next phase of life look like for me. And so I quit my job and kind of started traveling the world and looking for what's next. And, and it was actually a trip to Africa, the continent and five countries within it that made me realize this is where I would like to start the next phase of my life.
0: And you grew up in Nashville or no?
1: I grew up in Carmel, Indiana, on the north side of Indianapolis.
0: Oh, you did grow up in Indiana? Okay. But you live in Nashville now.
1: Tried and true Hoosier, baby.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We were talking off air about how my dad and my uncle are both Hoosiers and they grew up in Marion, Indiana. In fact, actually, I had the same conversation with the founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers because she's from Indiana as well.
1: (laughs) We're good stock.
0: Yeah. But unlike my dad, I don't think you grew up in an insane asylum. My grandfather was a groundskeeper (laughs) for. Then they called it insane asylums. I guess they don't call them that anymore, but they're mental health facilities. So part of the deal was that you would get housing. So I don't know if my dad had a greater appreciation for people or not. I have no idea growing up like that, but it was an interesting childhood to say the least.
1: I'm sure he did, man. I mean, you either have to take a hard left or a hard right when you're faced with people that are overcoming extraordinary circumstances in life. So speaking of extraordinary
0: circumstances, so you and I are speaking more than six feet apart because I'm in New York and you're in Tennessee. You are in your office right now alone. You had mentioned earlier that you'd had to furlough a very large percentage of your staff. And I've had to make some very, very tough decisions as well. And hopefully they're short-term and not long-term. Talk a little bit about
1: what that's been like. I mean, we're in the moment right now. It's brutal. It's been hard. I mean, I remember when... It happened all so fast. It was a Friday when a first announcement was made by Trump. And then on Monday, social distancing, I think, went to 25 people. And when that happened, all retail shut down. And 45% of our business is wholesale, which means we sell to boutiques around the world. 45% is online and 10% is our flagship store here in Nashville. And 55% of our business shut down overnight. And then... Of our online sales, it dropped 80% overnight. And that was consistent with any CEO that I've talked to. It was just a online trend that impacted everybody. You're
0: selling things that are nice to have, not must have per se. They're discretionary. It's not like food, toilet paper, right? It's like making a run on, I wish they would, but they're not. That's
1: right. Too bad we didn't start with hand sanitizer or Zoom. But anyway, so we were having to make quick decisions. I mean, it it became this stark reality where I had a. We have an investor base that helps us through these things and a board. And I remember sitting down with one of the board members and he said, Look, you just have to stay alive. This is not about 2021. This is not how do you keep certain elements of your business for the long term of your business in place so that you're protecting the long term. It was like, no, you have to survive this. And at first I was like, oh, Okay, yeah, I kind of get that but it just became more and more stark to me within days that, oh, we may not survive this if we don't make some really tough decisions right now. And our team has been extraordinary through it. It's nobody's mission here to cut jobs. It's anti our mission. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite of our mission. But we've watched all of the team members step up and say, look, we're going to do whatever it takes now to get all of our friends back as soon as we can. And so we've done that. Everybody's toughened up and made really hard decisions. We've all take personal cuts as employees to our income, but we want to get back our friends. That's where we sit right now is we want to get our friends back. So we want to get back to the 90 people that we are as able here in Nashville, Tennessee, which is you know our main offices, our manufacturing of jewelry. We work with women that have overcome some pretty extraordinary circumstances that make our jewelry and work all around our company. And then all our also our warehousing and fulfillment. And I'll just say this again, I'm not saying this to puff up on who Able is. I'm saying this because this is who our values are. And before coronavirus, we already had great benefits as a small company. We have a 401k for every single employee with a match. We have fully covered healthcare, 100% covered healthcare option. We have fully covered maternity. We have a $10,000 bonus or contribution if you're having infertility issues. And we have a $10,000 contribution if you need to adopt. And every woman in the company is an owner. And we're 97% or 95% women here at ABLE, by the way. The only reason I still have a job here is because I'm the dude that started it. But otherwise, (laughs) I'm pretty sure they would not hire me. I feel extraordinarily confident in that.
0: They might be plotting your demise right now. They Just, might. No, 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 yeah, I, They're I using this they have, time now. right? right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They've got time to figure it out. <laughs> so those have always been who we are and our values and that we pay a minimum wage You know, in Nashville of $14, which is well above the living wage statistic. And so those values have translated over what we're trying to accomplish right now. We are constantly having discussions about our values. And yes, those will drive PR moments, like you said. Those will be the outcomes. But decisions, like you're saying, that aren't ethical or trying to cut behind closed doors and trying to hide things from consumers, that'll become PR as well, just bad PR. And so we're having really, we just had a conversation before we jumped on this podcast of how do we try to figure out where to cut the right places in order to bring back people the, the quickest. I mean, these are really diligent conversations that we're having. And also forcing a lot of creativity, right, Aaron? Like necessity is the mother of invention and we're having to rethink everything as to how we communicate with our audience and even the type of company we're gonna be post-corona. Pre-corona,
0: there's always this talk about digital transformation, right? And like the ultimate digital transformation, sadly, is corona in so many ways. and. This is absolutely, look, I've, I've been working for 30 years now, and I'm a crisis and issues guy. In my core capability, this is what I do. And I always say, it's not the crisis, it's how you respond. And there's always an end. There's some sort of an end in sight. And this is, these are scenarios. There's no end in sight, even though we know it'll end eventually. And I've never seen such polar decisioning where it's like the economy or lives. And I don't think there's any in-between. And it's interesting to see the calculus that goes behind it. And also, and you probably experienced this with your team members, and I think what I'm hearing you say is that you hope for and you see the best in people. In their medals really tested in times of crisis, right? You really see who they are. And sometimes, I've had to prepare myself for this. I've had as much kind of warmth and hope in certain people, but I've also been very disappointed in certain people, I'm not going to name them, both personally and professionally in the way they've handled or mishandled this moment. And I try to say to myself, Oh, you know, it's okay. That's like, not everybody's cut out for this. Not everybody knows how to handle it. It's kind of like when we lose loved ones and when someone dies, not everybody always knows what to say or the right words, but except, and maybe I'll get over this over time. This is different. This is like, this is real character. Yeah. Show your values for sure. It's not about an
1: awkward moment.
0: No, it's not. And this is endurance too. This is not like a 5k. I'm a long distance runner. I do triathlons and stuff like that. And like, I think of everything in endurance and stages and how you like prepare your mind. This is something we need to think about. And you're right. It's not just about survival. At the end of the day, we're all having to make these decisions where we have to make certain sacrifices of certain individuals because that's what we're doing in order to preserve the whole, to preserve more people. And those are hard choices. And I don't know how else
1: to say it. I just don't know how else to say it. We are trying to do some radical things. I mean, the first thing I would say in response to what you just said is, I agree. I think there's an opportunity to give grace and still be disappointed in the way that some people or brands are handling things because I really do believe in this overflow of your heart thing. And at the end of the day, the most important thing to have is an overflow of your heart, probably as a brand is humility. I mean, look. The thought that you have to be perfect before you can be honest is not only an impossible thing to execute, but it's also just not reality. We're going to make missteps. So if the presentation that you try to put out to the world is that you've got it figured out, man, best of luck to you, but your life is going to be really hard in hard moments. And so we always invite our customers into it and just say, look, these are our lowest wages. And some of them, for example, aren't above a living wage. And that's okay. Let's have an honest conversation about why they're not. And we're trying to get them there. When the entire industry is only at 2%, no, of course we're not going to be at 100%, but we're fighting for it. And here's where we are at. And here's where we're at along the way. And consumers, while it's a more complex message to have to follow, I think they would rather follow the complexity, especially in a time like Corona, when there's the bandwidth to follow the complexity than the quick quip as to, what we're being radical about or, or how we're being transparent with our consumers when it's not really that true.
0: Yeah, and complexity is okay. Nuance is not.
1: Yeah, well said. And the hard decisions around uh, letting people go and things like that, like our intent has been to furlough, which means that we pay people's health insurance and that we make sure, we've made sure that everybody's at least at a living wage in our home offices here in Nashville that have been furloughed. But then the plan to bring them back has kind of been, I don't want to call it fun, but I I want to call it kind of like the Rocky moment where you feel like you're fighting for the fight and it feels good to fight for your people. And we're doing things like trying to figure out ways to deplete our inventory to extraordinarily irresponsible levels so that we can even get our manufacturers back to work too. So it's a crazy time, but I think it's a time for the radical man.
0: It is, but I've always believed, and I believe now more than ever before, not to be all like weird and spiritual or whatever, but like, if you follow your heart, and if you lead with empathy, not apathy, and if you focus on your values and your first principles and all those things, the reason why we are entrepreneurs, eventually there'll be a dividend for everybody that you're trying to champion, that you're trying to protect. It's just not instant. You have to have patience, but it's coming. The yield will be there. It's just not right now. Because you can only control what you can control. You can't control the now. You can control choices you make now in order to preserve yourself for the future. And that's kind of what gets me through. You know, every day is a new day. I say like some days, literally days in a row, it's like somebody just gut punching you, constantly just pummeling you. And then you've got some good days too. <laughs> it's just like, it, it never ends.
1: Yeah, I've definitely had them. I've definitely spent days in fetal position on the bathroom floor for sure. But you know, this time has been different for that it doesn't feel like gut punches. It feels like something that's so far out of our control. It's not been stressful for me. It's actually just been incredibly sad to see what's happening. But the only addendum that I would add to what you say, which I totally agree with, is that there will be dividends down at the end of this road. And in the off chance that we don't make it, I know that our employees that will all no longer have jobs can come to a party and look each other in the eyes and say, we did it the right way. We did everything the way that we knew we should have done it. And I know that I can look at my four daughters and say, look, we've got to move, but here's why. And I'll always rather stand on my principles and fail than make a sacrifice and win in the short run.
0: Well, I like what you said before too, when you talked about you don't have to be perfect, you have to be honest. I think that it's something I've been saying for a while now, which is I let people know, I ask for forgiveness early on. I'm like, you know, we're going to make some mistakes. Just understand that our intent is pure. Our intent is honest. It's not to try to make mistakes or to to ruin anybody's lives. It's actually just the opposite, but we don't have all the answers. We're just trying our best and just give us some space, you know, give us some room. And One of the things I think is really important is that people know how they can help you by at least going online right now to help you deplete your inventory. Yeah, yeah. Can you share for us your web address so we can do some shopping?
1: Yeah, we used to be called fashionable when we first started and then and it was Fashionable, and then we just changed to able. But we've kept the URL all this time unless somebody wants to donate a very expensive URL to us called able. It's livefashionable.com, or if you just Google ABLE, local and global, you'll see it come up because we work with women both locally here in Nashville and around the world. And so that's why we're called ABLE Local and Global.
0: Well, I am going to go on this afternoon as soon as I get through a few more meetings and calls. And I really appreciate you donating your time during this time to speaking with us and offering some pearls of wisdom, which I think are awesome. And I wish you and your family and your company all the best. And I know that you'll be back online soon. And I appreciate everything that you do. Thank you so much,
1: Aaron. I've enjoyed it. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always-on-point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at theboppodcast, and learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com.